0: Uh, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. This will be sermon number 5 in the book of Romans, and we're still in verse 1. <laughs> That's, that means if we go about this rate, 5 weeks for every verse, um, we'll be done, uh, I'll be dead. So it's going to be a long time before we get through the book of Romans, but um, we'll, we'll see. We have a lot to cover this morning, so this is what we're going to do. We're not going to review at all. All right. All the sermons are all over the internet. They're on Spotify. They're, I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, they're in Apple Podcasts, Google Pod. They're everywhere. So they're on the app. So I'm not going to uh, go review. You can go listen. Okay? So this is what we're going to do. Um, we, are, we have been working through Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and today we come to one word found in verse 1. Now we're going to focus on this word because I believe that what is about to happen is... Paul, the author, is about to introduce the subject for the entire book. What we've been looking at so far is Paul introducing himself, and we talked about it using four identifiers. We interpreted those identifiers by looking at them in light of what some will call the key verse of the book of Romans, which is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed, he wants the believers at Rome to know that Paul himself is not ashamed, of the gospel... Of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Why he wants them to understand power is they live in Rome. They understand earthly power. He wants to understand that the gospel, whatever the gospel is, contains the power of God unto salvation. Then in Romans 1, he identified himself in four ways to demonstrate what? the No, to demonstrate the power of the gospel, right? That's what those identifiers do. The last identifier was separated. Everybody see that in verse 1? But he was separated unto the gospel of God. That introduces the subject to the entire book. All right? So think of the book in this way. We already know the book of Romans can be broken down into two parts, correct? Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11. This is the doctrinal teaching of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11 is the doctrinal teaching of the gospel. It's going to deal with the doctrinal aspects of the gospel. Everything associated, associated with the gospel, everything we need to understand about the gospel from a doctrinal perspective. When you get to chapter 12 of the book of Romans, it goes from the doctrinal consideration to... The living out of the gospel. It's one thing to believe the gospel. It's another thing to live the gospel. So that's how the book is broken apart. So our job this morning is to figure out this word gospel. Now this is how most pastors would do it. Gospel means good news. All right, let's continue. That is a very, 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 very bad way to handle the word gospel. So we're going we're gonna to dig in. We're going to go all the way back to the Septuagint. You'll see why. We're going to really try to understand this term, but I'm only going to be focused on Like This is a type of sermon that there's a lot of information to get to where I want to go, but there's only going to be two points I want you to care about when you leave here. These are two very important points, and I hope that all you, like, this is going to be the sermon that if we review, if you just remember the two points and forget everything else, I'll be okay with. Typically, I get upset and irritated that you forget everything, but this is one case where you now have the ability to say, I forgot everything, but two points, and I'm not going to tell you what those two points are right now, because you've got to wait. No, you've got to wait till the end, all right? Everybody Ready? All right, let's start. The word gospel, obviously, if you've been a Christian for, I don't know, five minutes, the term is very familiar to you. In fact, the term gospel is even used by people who are not Christians. that will say, that's the gospel truth, right? Don't don't consider that to be gospel, right? They almost use the idea gospel as being synonymous with what? Fact or something that is true, Many times when Christians refer to the term gospel, they will use it in reference to four books. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, and the gospel of John. Everyone in this room should know the New Testament never uses that term in reference to those books. All right? That's something that we, we talk about why are they called the gospel, but that's a whole different idea. So what we need to do is get into a real understanding of this term. So are you ready? All right. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we have the word separated unto the gospel. The English word is gospel. The Greek word there is euangelion. Euangelion. All right. Euangelion. I will, if, we are, if you're going to write it out, it would be spelled this way. e u a G-G-E-L-I-O-N. E-U-A-G-G-E-L-I-O-N. on Gileon. Alright, remember that Greek word, because this is, this is going to be so critical to where we're going. Euan Gileon. It's translated gospel about 77 times in the King James. Some of the ways it's used is gospel. Sometimes it's used as gospel of Christ. Sometimes it's used gospel of God. Sometimes it's used gospel of the kingdom. There you go. You get the basic idea. If you're using blue letter Bible, you can look at all that information as well. All right. Euangelion. 77 times. All right. Now what we need to do is try to figure out what does the word mean? Because pastors just say good news. Ooh, all right. I'm, glad, I'm glad I went to church to hear that. Okay, it, it goes, there's, there's a d- deeper meaning here. All right? Here's some of the uh, ways it's used. Number one, it can refer to our reward for good tidings. Uh, that doesn't help us too much, right? That doesn't really help us with the idea of the gospel worth thinking. But it can be used as a, re- a reward for good tidings. Number two, it can refer to good tidings. Or what would be another way of saying that? Good news, but listen to now where the definition goes. Now, don't try to write all of this down, all right? Because it's like a paragraph, all right? Just listen and I'll summarize. You ready? Good tidings, or the glad tidings of the kingdom of God soon to be set up. So the word gospel is associated with the concept of a coming kingdom, all right, let's continue. Um, the, the glad tidings of the kingdom of God soon to be set up and subsequently also of Jesus the Messiah, the founder of this kingdom. So the word gospel can be associated with a kingdom and the founder of that kingdom, or it could be a messianic term. All right, that helps a little bit. Um, After the death of Christ, the term comprises also the preaching of concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross to procure eternal salvation for the men in the kingdom of God, but as restored to life and exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, thence to return in majesty to consummate the kingdom of God. The term gospel is associated with kingdom in some way, shape, or form. That's an idea you usually don't hear preached. There's a kingdom aspect to it. All right? It can also refer to the glad tidings of salvation through Christ. All right? The good news of salvation through Christ. We understand that, correct? The proclamation of the grace of God manifest and pledged in Christ um, and the gospel. All right? That's kind of the same idea. Now this one's interesting. As the messianic rank of Jesus was proved by his words, his deeds, and his death. The narrative of the sayings, deeds and deaths of Jesus Christ, came to be called the gospel or glad tidings. The term can also refer to the narrative or the teachings of Jesus the Messiah, his death, burial, and resurrection. All right, There's a lot of things going on there, right? There's a lot of things going on there. But here's the question any good Bible student should ask. When Paul was writing to the believers at Rome and they heard the letter, right, if they were able to actually look at it, when they saw Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the Euangelion, right, the word gospel of God, what would their minds have thought? What would their minds have understood? Because when you hear the word gospel, you just think, good news. And you don't, you don't go any deeper in that. They didn't, they didn't understand it the same way you did. That word, Gileon, they would have understood it from a lot of different ideas and a lot of different sources in the way that it was used. So guess what we need to do? We need to figure out how they would have understood it. And the best way to do that is to go back to, well, the Septuagint. Everybody here know what the Septuagint is? Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Anybody know when uh, the uh, Septuagint translation began and when it concluded? 700 seven to 400 what? Okay. At least you got it BC. That's the main thing. You got it BC. That's the main thing. All right. It began in the third century and was completed around 132 BC or if we're going to be in a university, BCE. Right. B.C. for Christians before Christ and academic settings before the Christian era. All right? Now, why is this critical? 132 BCE or B.C. Why is this critical? Well, one, you've got to understand the completion of the Septuagint because many of the New Testament writers, they do what? They quote from the Septuagint. Right? Not the Masoretic text they quote from the Septuagint. This is very important about textual issues. But this, the reason this is important is any, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, right? And many of them, if they were reading the Old Testament, they were reading the? Ah, so what we want to know, did the Septuagint use the word euangelion? Because it's a Greek word and the Septuagint is a? of the Old Testament. Ah, see, see, that's pretty clever, huh, right? So we need to figure out what what they would have understood and how it was used. So we're going to look at two Old Testament texts. Yeah, two Old Testament texts to establish where we want to go, and then we're going to only focus on two points. I mean, literally, we could be done in about 20 minutes, okay? All right, nobody believes that. All right, here we go. I am going to try to, uh, I'm not going to go past those two points because I want these two points to be really, uh, uh, everyone to really struggle with these two points. All right, let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. All right, Isaiah chapter 40. Thinking caps on, all right, thinking caps on. When we open up our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, what do we need to remember? Isaiah is primarily focused on whom? Judah, right, all right. And he is he is ministering to them, and some of times he's doing what? Condemning them for their sin, condemning them for their apostasy, condemning them for their idolatry, right? Some harsh condemnation. What else does he do? He warns them that what is coming? Judgment. What judgment? Oh come on, what judgment? Babylonian captivity. Everybody should know that. Babylonian captivity. Where they go into captivity for how long? 70 years. Okay, everybody's with me. All right, so that's the context. Now, in the midst of all of this judgment, condemnation, warning, we turn to Isaiah chapter 40 and we hear these words Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. In the midst of a warning of judgment, there is a call to comfort the people. All right? Now, the word euangelion is not used yet, but you get the idea. There's something happening here that's very important a call for comfort. He says, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. That her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. All right, now this is very critical. If we know anything about Israel, if we go all the way back to Exodus, what have we learned about Israel up to the point of Isaiah chapter 40? Have they failed once? Okay, have they failed twice? Have they felled three times, 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times? They have felled every way humanly possible, right? I mean, they are delivered from Egyptian bondage, and it takes them about how long to take off all their clothes and start running around a golden calf? I don't know, 15 minutes? Okay, next thing you know, they uh, they start wandering through the wilderness, and what do they start doing? They start complaining and grumbling. And then when they finally get to the promised land, what do they do? They don't want to go because they're scared. And then when they finally get into the promised land, what do they do? They don't follow all the instructions they're supposed to follow and get rid of all the people they're supposed to get rid of. And then the next thing they start doing is what? They start idolatry, intermarrying with, uh, with pagans. They're not supposed to be intermarrying with. In fact, it gets so bad that by the time you get to Judges, it's referred to as a time where everyone is doing right. And when you get to the end of Judges, you can't even preach it in a normal church service because it's so horrible, so vile, that if you dis- if you'd preach it, parents will get mad that you preach it in front of their children, right? That's how bad it is, right? It's just rebellion. Then they decide that they want to be like everyone else, so they want a king. That doesn't work out so good. They ultimately get a king, and then ultimately that leads to what? A divided kingdom, which leads to... A lot of evil kings on at least one side, right? Okay, a lot of evil kings on one side. Sin, rebellion, war, fighting, division, hatred, bitterness. You just—it's just It's just like, I mean, by the time you get to Isaiah, you're like, whew, I am done with Israel, man. I am just sick of these people, right? I mean, And, and sometimes when we read, we read it, we're like, what's wrong with Israel? What's wrong with Israel? What's wrong with Israel, right? Because something doesn't seem right. But all of a sudden in Isaiah 40, Comfort. Comfort. Hey, your iniquity is what? Pardoned. Wait, why? How many chances do they get? Look, from a human perspective, let's be honest. You, you, you kind of shake your head like, really? They're still, they're still getting pardoned, right? You've received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. They have been chastised, right? 70 years of, of captivity. Now, all of a sudden, verse 3 is interesting because verse 3 does what? The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Will we stop? That's quoted in the New Testament. That's quoted about John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah. So, what what just happened? Did it just jump? Did it just jump? There's got to be two ways of understanding this. This has some historical ramification for whom? For Israel in captivity, right? Your captivity is coming to an end. Hey, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is coming. How is God coming for them? And then ultimately God came in the flesh, Right, there's, there, remember Isaiah does this all the time. You're like, wait, one verse will jump and you're like, wait, just, we just jumped like, you know what, 2,000 years, how did, wait, whoa, what's going on? Trying to read Isaiah can be very, 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 very confusing to anyone who tries to study it. But, so then he says, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Okay, wait, what, what's going on? Seeming to argue that all what? geography is going to be radically, clam- but basically all obstacles are going to be moved out of their way. There's not going to be any obstacles. It would be like instead of hiking somewhere where the terrain is difficult, the terrain is going to be made straight. Now, is that literal? Well, we know literally the ge- geography wasn't changed when it came out of Babylonian captivity. So was it symbolic? What, how do we understand it? There's a lot going on here. So far, so good. I know what you're asking. Where is on Gileon? Well, well, I don't know. We've got to find it. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. All right, God's glory is going to be revealed. Now this is comforting news for them for what reason? They have been under the wrath of God. They've been being chastised by God and now this is a promise that your sins have been pardoned. God is about to show up. Whoa! And he's not showing up to destroy them. Alright, this is good news, right? Alright, let's see what happens. Verse six. The um or verse five, we've got the the oh, they're gonna say it together. The mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Hmm. God's going to show up, but he wants them to remember that all flesh is like grass. It's not permanent, it's frail, it doesn't last. What's going on? And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. Flesh is as grass, goodliness is as what? Flower. The grass what? And the flower Fadeth. fadeth. So whatever we are, whatever they are, it doesn't last. Because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Now, just to make sure there's no confusing, confusion, he explains it, right? Who is he referring to as flower and grass? The people. The people are what? Frail. The people are what? Sometimes they look strong. Sometimes they look weak, Right? We 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 don't we're not gonna last even our even any, anything good about us is is temporary, right? There's something inherently wrong inside of us. We're corrupted, right? We could talk about total depravity here, but we won't. But what will stand forever? The word of God. What will est- be established forever is God's word. Now, here we go. O Zion, that bringest you on There is the word gospel. All right. Get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, you on Gileon. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and he were and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. What is he saying? Okay, I will. Instead of reading any lengthy commentaries here, I'll just I'll just paraphrase. Hey, Judah, comforting words I have for you. I have some good tidings for you. I have some good news for you, and this good news is associated with what? The restoration and coming of God to rule over them. Remember, we saw the word had something to do with the kingdom right? It's about a people. Here's what I want you to take. It's about a people. Do these people, are these people, uh, do they claim to be followers of God? Yes, that's Israel, right? I mean, they're the God, they, they speak constantly of the God of, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They constantly rebel against God. They constantly f- fall into idolatry. But it's an idea that, hey, chastisements come upon you, but I've got good news. God is coming. He is forgiving you. He's going to restore you, and he's going to rule over you. But not in a negative way, in a caring way. This is a, good, this is a positive news, but it deals with what? restoration and salvation. It has something to do with Israel, but it has something to do with people who, do they deserve restoration? No. Do they deserve salvation? No. Do they deserve a king to come and rule over them in a good way? No. Keep that in mind. All right? That's the first way it is used. All right, go to Isaiah chapter 52. Are we going to run out of time? I'm going to run out of time. All right, Isaiah chapter fifty-two, verse one. We got to go quickly here. Verse one: Awake, awake! Put on thy strength, O Zion! Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. All right, which, what is this? Is again a promise of what? Restoration. What's been? What came into them? Their midst. The uncircumcised, the unclean, right? Babylon took them, right? Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from thy bonds, uh, the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. What's that imply? They're going to be redeemed without anything. Yeah, they don't, have any, they don't have any money, right? Remember the whether true, whether false, the, that uh, I don't know how accurate it is, and I'm paraphrasing basically the historical account that when Luther died, supposedly, in his pocket was a note that said, we're all beggars. Now, I think there's a little mythology there, but you get the idea. What was Luther saying? We don't have anything to offer God. We're beggars. We don't have anything. If God doesn't do something, we're, we don't have anything to offer God. All right? So in a sense, hey, this is going to be without money. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to so, sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have, I, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught, that they rule over them to make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed? Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know that in that day that I am, I, am, I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth euangelion, right? That publish peace. That bringeth good tidings, Gileon, of good that publisheth the salvation that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. What is this again? A message of what? Restoration, a message of redemption, a message of the coming king. All right. Now, that gives you the background to euangelion. I have pages of notes here that I could go into all the academic discussion. I could go into some how this word was used. I could go into some commentaries here. I could really go an hour on this, but I'm not. All right. Because now there's only two points I care for us to remember. All right? But these are important points. It's wonderful that we can all walk out here and sound smart that we know you on Gileon, right? We can go to lunch with someone and go, hey, did you know Gileon is used in the Septuagint in Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah 52? Did you know euangelion means more than just good news? You know the term mean, talks about restoration and the coming king and an established kingdom and the restoration of Israel. And this could have implications on eschatology and a future kingdom for Israel. Did you know it could have implications? You could look really smart. That's not what I want. In this particular case, I don't care how smart you look. I want you to understand the radical implications of this word. Because this word is all about the book of Romans, and that's what we're going to be studying for the next 9,000 years, okay? And that's not even hyperbole, okay? All right, we're going to be studying it for a long time. So we we need to not, not, we not we don't need to just know this word we need to know this word right It's like in the Bible when they speak of knowing someone they speak of an intimate relationship. You need an intimate relationship with this idea of the gospel. Simply put, the word, the word gospel references a message of salvation that deals with restoration, that deals with a coming king, that deals with a kingdom. It's all-encompassing of all of this. But the message is always for people who don't deserve it. It's always for people who deserve wrath, who deserve condemnation. It's always for people who are undeserving. That's why I went to those passages. We know Israel's story. You're going, wait a minute. What? Even after they come out of Babylonian captivity, how long does that last? Because by the time you open the New Testament, they're now under who? Rome. Well, they can never. And I thought there was a promise there that no more uncircumcised would come among them, right? How, well, how did Rome end up there? So what did he mean by that? Well, wait, now that's eschatology. Is that a future kingdom? Okay, now we, we can have all kinds of discussion. But it's, these are, are in, now when we speak of, of Israel, we constantly kind of look at them like, well, let's be honest, we may not say these words, but we kind of look at them as losers. Man, what is your problem? All right, two ways I want us to understand the word gospel. You ready? Number one, we need to become better at understanding the gospel in relation to the lost world. Now, I know what you're thinking. I already do that. Mm. Not if you listen to Christian radio in 2019. We don't. Something happened in the church since 2000, probably since 2015. You know, I'm always a student of not only uh, ancient church history, but I'm always a student of modern church history, listening and listening and reading and reading, trying to figure out where the church is going, what is happening. 2015, something really started taking place within the Christian world. The Christian world, and this has been going on since the 80s and maybe even before, the Christian world started becoming hijacked. And it became hijacked by politics. And by the time we get to the 2016 election, the hijacking of the American church had gone full-blown craziness, right? We won't talk about everything that occurred in the 2016 election with Christians, but something did not make a lot of sense. And even the world started writing articles going I thought the church said character matters. I thought the church said, like the church was saying all these things back when Clinton was doing his thing. Everybody was like, this, and all of a sudden now we're like, ah, it doesn't matter. And and so the world was writing articles going, what happened to the church? Now when the world starts asking what happened to the church, it's a pretty good indication that the church kind of lost its mind, right? So how does this relate? Well, here's the thing. Once we start seeing things politically, this is how we start seeing things. We stopped seeing human beings as people who need good tidings and need to hear the gospel, that yes, they are sinners, but there is a message of a coming king who gave his life and died so that you can be saved. There is good news of salvation. We stopped seeing people that way, and we started seeing people like, oh, there's those transgenders, and they want to do this, and they want to do that. We better stop it. We better vote this person into office, and we better stop, oh, there's that LGBTQ movement. We better stop that. Oh, wait, those, those illegals are illegals who are going to infiltrate our country and destroy America. We, better, we started looking at everything from a political perspective. And you would even hear Christians start talking. And they didn't speak of people as human beings. They spoke of people as political opponents. Not people who needed the message of Jesus Christ and needed the gospel, but political opponents that we needed to fight politically. And Christian radio is filled with this nonsense, hour after hour a day, arguing about, "Oh, we better do this and the LGBT and, and this and the transgender and this and this, and we're going to fight this and we better fight that and we better." And it's like, whoa 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 whoa. We're supposed to be gospel-minded. Those people need salvation. They don't need to be conquered politically. They don't need to be destroyed politically. They don't need to be overthrown politically. That's the merging of church and state. They need to be given the gospel. But the church gave up on the power of the gospel. The gospel is no longer powerful. We need politicians to implement morality. That's the wrong mindset. Do you see how dangerous that mindset is? We, when you start seeing people as, oh wait, what, oh you're a feminist, oh wait, you're pro-abortion, oh wait, you believe in LGBTQ, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, whatever letter you want to sign, you don't believe there's two genders, and, and you want to fight all of that, you're forgetting that, you know what, they're a human being who needs what first and foremost. They're not a political opponent that you fight on Facebook. They're a human being that you should be praying for and doing everything you can to present a very simple message. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Christ, the Messiah, came to save sinners. The good news is God came in the form of his son, to die so that you can be saved. And he can restore you. There is a coming kingdom that you can be a part of. There is a spiritual kingdom that is at at hand. Is that not how John the Baptist handled it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a call to salvation. There is some goodness. That doesn't mean we ignore sin. But the issue isn't LGBTQ. LGBTQ. Because I want this. This well, we don't have a lot of teenagers. We don't, well, Joel's here, but that's about it. But if all the teenagers were here, especially teenagers raised in a Christian home, this is the way they kind of see lost people. Oh, mom, dad, did you see how they're dressed? Mom and dad, did you hear the bad word they said? That's not Christianity. That's moralism. Ooh, you've got the good kids because they don't talk that way and they don't have three tattoos and their ears not peered. Ooh, ooh, look at how, and look how modest they are. They're just as sinful as the person who's hanging out at the strip club. Just the differences, the kind of sin. But the, ki- but the kid doesn't see them as, oh, mom and dad, we need to pray for them. Oh, mom and dad, I, I, I want to present the gospel to them. No, where they just talk about them, you know, in the family. Get Oh, did you see what she was wearing at church? If, if that ha- you should stop that so fast that their head s- spins. No, they're human beings who need the gospel, but we don't present it as a gospel. We see them as what? Moral opponents, political opponents, the the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're sinners who need what you supposedly are supposedly about. What? Which is the gospel. This is how. Well, I you know. I just, when I go to work, I don't really like working with that guy because, you know, he cusses all the time and I just, if you think that way, stop, just stop being a Christian. Just stop. Just please stop and just walk around as you're morally superior and you're better than everyone else. You should want to, everyone knows how the military did me. They gave me every reprobate they could find, right? They gave me the Satanists, the atheists. They they gave me the people who were three seconds away from being kicked out of the military. I'm like, send them all to me. Because I didn't view them as my enemy. I didn't view them like, oh no, they're bad and they're bad, may corrupt me. I was like, oh good, we'll get to hang out and have great conversations. Who did I not want working for me? I didn't want Christians anywhere near me. I'm like, get the Christians as far away, because usually that, that was never pleasant. I, did, I don't get along with Christians. So I was, I was always hanging out with the lost people, man. Like, go to lunch. Oh, and we would be having great conversations, man. We talked philosophy. We talked religion. We talked the Bible. We, I let them talk about their belief systems. And for every single one of them, how did I try to treat them? As a human being who needed what? What I thought was supposed to be our most important thing. The gospel. I presented it to him any way I could. Any way. I, sometimes it wasn't even about presenting it. It was about doing what—showing respect. Oh, you're an atheist. Well, let me tell Tell me about your atheism. When did you become an atheist? How, how, how do you perceive this? Like just asking questions. It wasn't like you're an atheist. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What am I going to do? Like that's crazy. I, 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 when I was a teenager at gymnast, the best example, gymnat, little hick school, everyone in the school claimed to be a Christian, right, of course, right, no matter how drunk they got, no matter how many people they were sleeping with, they were all Christians, of course. Well, this new kid came to Jim Ned, and he was, oh, an atheist. Oh, my goodness. What do we do with these people? We put them in a cage and pay admission to look at them like they're in a zoo, right? So they, this one girl, she was just going crazy on this kid. Right? She was losing her mind because he was an atheist. So they come walking into a science class. We had a substitute teacher, poor substitute, because she lost control of the class within seconds. And it was everybody was jumping on this atheist. Everyone was just going to town on this atheist. And I'm sitting there, the quiet one, and I'm just kind of looking at the situation like, last Friday y'all were all at a party getting drunk. And what, what is everybody going after... So I kind of like him out, right? And so I was like, "This has got to stop." So I just like I just wanted the atheist. I just started asking the atheist, "Just tell us about your atheism. Why are you an atheist?" Well, I'm an atheist because Christians are a bunch of judgmental jerks. <laughs> wonder where he got that idea from? I wonder where. Brand new idea. Like, he's literally experiencing it. Right? They just needed to be what? A friend of sinners. Where? 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 Does anybody know that idea? I can't, I'm not familiar with it. I think whoever did that was crazy. Oh, that was Jesus. Remember, who did he get along with? The lost people. Who did he not get along with? The religious people. Right? You can... Re- oh, no. Right, because lost people you can have a conversation with. Religious people just want to argue. I thought, oh, they just want to argue everything. No matter what the point is. It's Tuesday. No, it's not. It's Wednesday. You're like, okay, wait. I didn't even know there was an argument here. Okay, but I always want to argue. Okay, so here's the thing. You have to see lost people as what? People who need what? The gospel. What do you, do you see them as political opponents first? No. Do you see them as enemies? No. You see them as people who need something, right? Don't you, I mean, I thought Christian, don't we believe in a place called hell? Do we worry about how they're dressed? I mean, that Christian kids raised in a Christian home, they're always the ones to point out how someone else looks and how someone else talks. It's like, where did they get that idea? They get it from parents. Who cares? I don't care what they look like. Who cares? They're a human being and needs the gospel. Stop judging them. What you should be concerned with is their spiritual state. Who cares? But it's almost like Christian. And you can see it. Like if if someone walks into this church who's lost, right? She comes walking in. Maybe she's got full sleeve tats. Maybe she's not dressed appropriate. If there's a bunch of Christian teenagers, they'll be like. And I just want to come right in the middle of those Christian kids and just. Just have words. Because it's so ungodly. And in many cases, they'll go to the parents. And the parents are like. They're doing the same thing. You know what you should say? Sit next to us. You're like, but my kids, my kids, your kids are little sinners already. They don't catch sin, they are sin. Sin is not contagious. You're born with it. You have to quarantine them, okay? You're like, but they'll start thinking it's cool. Well, that's probably because they're unregenerate. See them. Don't see them that way. You see how, that, and all the conversations in 2019, everything is a political battle, is it not? LGBTQ, transgender, and we label everyone. Just label them as what? Human beings who need gospel. Okay. That's the first point. Now, here is the real point. Oh, boy. The second one is so near and dear to my heart. Number one, we need to see the gospel as it relates to lost people. Number two, we need to see the gospel as being something necessary for Christians. We see the gospel in this mentality, right? Here's Bobby, right? He's the Tuscola drunk, right? He's always, they always find him without any clothes at all, sips, drunk, causing all kinds of trouble, Right? And we see him, we're like, man. On one hand, sometimes we'll perceive him as who we'll keep our kids away instead of perceiving him as a man that needs the gospel. But if we can get past that and we finally present the gospel to him, we think the gospel's for him, right? And then he gets saved, and then what do we say? It's all gone. All your sin is gone. It's all forgotten. We're going to view you as a new person in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. Welcome to the family of God. Everything's wonderful, right? Okay. But here's what happens. Now that Bobby's been a Christian for, I don't know, six months, a year, four years, and all of a sudden one Friday night we find him at Alsop's drunk without clothes again, what happens? Now it's not, here's the gospel. Jesus Christ died to forgive you of all of those sins. Repent and it's forgiven. It's kind of like, Bobby... God will forgive you. And then we throw in a very famous word, but, which almost does what? Negates Negates everything we just said. We're like, but. Now, we establish that there's got to be consequences. We make up the consequences, right? And so we're like, we may say, Bobby, you're going to have to come up in front of the church. You're going to have to tell everyone what you did because we want to publicly shame him. Now, we'll say that we're not really publicly shaming him. We just want him to be an example. Why don't we be an example of the gospel? You know what the gospel is? The gospel that saved you is the gospel that forgives you. The gospel that cleansed you before salvation is the gospel that cleanses you after salvation. God forgives and God restores. The gospel is sufficient. We need to see that we need the gospel. Because when we start thinking, this is the way we start thinking. As I, when I was really bad, I needed the gospel. But now that I'm saved, you know, as long as we don't do anything big, Right? And as long as it's not a public sin, then we're okay. We don't really need the gospel. Right? You see this all the time, say, with teenagers in a church. You can have all kinds of teenagers in the church, and a lot of them can be involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. It may be actual physical immorality. It may be wrong, they're texting in a wrong way. Maybe it's lust. There's a lot of sexual immorality. Nobody really cares as long as it's what? But if for unfortunate circumstances, it's usually the girl. The girl ends up pregnant because that's... Now we can see it, right? All of a sudden, the girl... Now it's a big deal. Now all the rest of the kids are like, hey, man, I've been sinning all kinds of ways. But it's okay because I don't really need the gospel because, you know, private. But it becomes public scandal. Now, not in all churches, but in some churches, the girl will be marched up to Where? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I said, and all the other teenagers there who've been engaged in all kinds of other sexual immorality, whether it's pornography, whether it's wrong text, whether it's sending pictures they shouldn't have sent, they're skate by, because the gospel. Is, now, but see, that's not even really the gospel, because they're putting her up there. They're saying they're doing that to be an example to all the other good kids, right? But what? What's the point? The point. What does she need more than anything? She needs to know that the gospel that saved her is the gospel that continues to forgive her. Because the gospel is about the finished work of Jesus Christ. His shed blood. You don't need to publicly humiliate someone. You need to publicly say, here's the gospel. I know that from personal experience. When your world falls apart and you're caught in some kind of sin, it's amazing how very few Christians show up to put their arms around you and go, God forgives you. His blood is sufficient. They call to say, what did you do? Or they call and do this wonderful thing. Oh, yeah, I'll help you. Click. Oh, call everyone. again. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? No gospel. Gossip. The gospel has to be for Christians, too. It has to be for believers. Now, what am I saying? There are no consequences? Well, let me make this clear. First, there's natural consequences. Natural consequences are, if you're a teenage girl, you engage in premarital sex, there's a chance of getting pregnant. If you get pregnant, that's a consequence, right? Natural Natural consequences, no one imposes. If you're involved in sexual immorality, very promiscuous, maybe there's a chance of an, uh, an STD. That's a natural consequence. If you commit an, an, uh, a, a, an illegal act, there's legal consequences, correct? Those are natural. Sometimes there are those imposed consequences, right? Now, yes, trying to figure out what the imposed consequences are, are hard because does the Bible really outline imposed consequences? I mean, a good portion of your Bible written by men and did some pretty messed up stuff. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, killed a man, didn't even get to go into the promised land, but we got no problem reading his words. David, murder, adultery, cover-up, but we have no problem saying the Psalms are the greatest things we've ever read. Solomon, I mean, my goodness, idolatry, polygamy, I mean, let's talk, you want to talk about sexual immorality when you have what, how many concubines? 700 wives, 400 concubines, whatever it was. But we think, ooh, let's read some Proverbs a day. Now, now that man in, in the modern church wouldn't even be allowed to teach. He wouldn't even be allowed to be the janitor. Right? So we impose consequences. Now, it's great. I understand that there can be consequences, but what should be the first order of business? The gospel. The gospel. It saves. It restores. It's good news. It doesn't mean you say, hey, Bobby, you can go to uh, subs every week and just be no clothes and getting drunk, and we're all cool with it. It's not that. Okay, it's not the Corinthian idea. It's like, hey, this is sin, man. You got to stop. You got to stop. You got to stop. We're here to help you. But you know what? No matter how many times you fail, God's sin is greater than your failure. That's how come I've always said when it comes to church discipline, I will beg, plead, I will do everything in my power, and I have, if someone's getting ready to face church discipline, I will do everything in my power to help them do what? Avoid discipline. Because why? Church discipline is turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I don't want to do that. Right? So I'm going to plead and beg and go, come on, just do this. Like, work with me. I'll do anything. And guess what if they if they decide they're done and they walk away, guess when they walk back in, what do I require? nothing i don't require some some ten page letter i don't require signed in blood i don't require a twenty percent tithe versus a ten percent tithe okay, I, maybe I should okay i don't require them get to the pulpit and go i've been." Backslidden for I don't require anything because the gospel doesn't require anything. You know what the gospel requires? Repent and believe. The gospel is for believers. It's for you. I know you may not feel like you need the gospel today, but you know what? You've sinned this week. You're like, "But, but I didn't, I wasn't involved in any public scandal. You still sinned. And so sometimes we only think the gospel is for the really bad people. That's why kids raised in a Christian home never think they need the gospel. They need the gospel. And here's the good news. If the gospel could be, in a sense, good tidings could be brought to Israel. (laughs) Of all people. And if we believe that those promises that were not fulfilled that we just read in Isaiah. Like some of those things didn't seem to come to pass, right? If we believe that there's a future that even is more of the power of the gospel, right? Because it says God made a covenant with Israel. Israel did everything they could to go against every part of the covenant, but God is still not done with them because God's gospel continues to save and to purify and to restore. I want us to be gospel-minded people. That's what I want us to be: gospel-minded. Right? Now, gospel minded doesn't mean we say, hey, apostasy is good, heresy is wonderful. We still confront sin. Right? But I confront sin in a different way. I don't confront sin by turning it into a political argument or a political battle. I turn it into, like, from a lost person perspective. Like, do I, like, if Lydia's, well, she is lost, but if, if Lydia was, if, if, since Lydia is lost, do I care what sin she committed? I don't need Seth to give me a list of all the sins she committed this week. I don't care, right? I need her to know that she's a sinner. I can go to the Ten Commandments and prove that, right? I want her to know she's a sinner, and I want her to know that because she's a sin, she's under the condemnation of God. But here's good news. Here's the good tidings. Here's the Gileon. Christ died for sinners. Repent and believe on him. And if she repents and believes, you know what I say? Welcome to the family of God. The old is past. We now view you as a new creature in Christ. But if Bobby has been a saved for all these years and he ends up at Allsops without any clothes and drunk, you know what I want to say to him? Put on some clothes. Okay, then, then, then what the gospel does is cover that sin. It's not there to tell everyone about his sin. It's to cover the sin and say, come on, Bobby, let's talk, man. Let's talk. Dude, you got to get this together. What can we do, man? What can we do? How can we help you? How can we help you? It's not about, okay, well, Bobby, that's two times you've been been at all subs. You can no longer do this, 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 this. Now we're just going to give all these consequences. That's not gospel. That's rules. The gospel says you're forgiven. I need the gospel every single day. I need the gospel every si- It doesn't mean every sermon has to be a gospel presentation. It just means we need to think from a gospel-minded way, right? That we need Christ and him crucified. I need Christ and crucified. Before I was saved, I need Christ crucified when I was a teenager. I need Christ crucified when I was a young adult. I needed Christ crucified years ago. I need Christ crucified today. And guess what? When I wake up tomorrow, I still need to know that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse me from all. Some Christians, I don't think, believe it's good enough to cleanse. Or, well, it cleanses, but, but, well, when you start putting a but when Christ's uh, blood is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you kind of destroy the all. Now, I know. again, there still can be consequences. I'm not arguing that. Each situation has to be taken into effect. You have to say, okay, what is the right behavior? What is the wrong behavior? What's the right way to handle this? And, and there's sometimes there's going to be disagreement on the right way and the wrong way. I understand that. But the primary, everyone should be mainly concerned with what? The gospel. All right, and I'll end with this. I've told the story a million times. But I'll never forget it because, again, it's one of the most important things that ever happened to me in my life. And it really helped me understand this in a a real way. And I was so glad that it happened in this building. Obviously, when my life fell completely and utterly and absolutely apart for my own stupidity and my own sin, um, obviously, there was a, a very, I mean, there was a lot of consequences, obviously, still today with some of those consequences. Fine. That's perfect. I understand it. But I'll never forget when I had to come here and talk to everyone. I'll never forget that one individual, Robert H- Hagedal, I'm going to get upset. Okay, he walked up to me after everything had happened. He put his arms around me and he simply said these words Cling to the cross. That's all he said. That's pure gospel. He didn't say, You loser, you piece of garbage, oh I'm gonna go tell everyone. He just simply put his arms around me and said, cling to the cross. Because why did I need more than anything? I needed the cross. 450 people called me. 450 phone calls. One person said that to me. He didn't give me a theological dissertation. He just knew that the cross, that cross that saved me was the cross that would cleanse me and forgive me. Now, there still were consequences. There's still things. I understand that. Not saying that that was wrong in any way, shape, or form. Some could argue it should have been even more. I completely understand that. But there's still what needed to be said at that time was what? The gospel. We need to remember the gospel for lost people, and we need to remember the gospel for saved people. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, not the typical verse by verse through Romans, but Lord, a message that I pray that we, when we leave here, every person we see, we see them as people who need the gospel, whether it's people in this church, whether it's people outside of this church, whether it's people um, anywhere, we all need the gospel. And guess what? Everyone in this room sinned this today. Everyone in this room is going to sin this afternoon We constantly are people in desperate need of the gospel. And I pray that that fact would always keep us humble and keep us broken and make us never forget that we're simply beggars who have nothing to offer you and you have everything that we need, which is the finished work of your son on that cross. And I pray that we would embrace it, we would cherish it, we would love it, and we would think about people in light of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,